Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, you guys. This is Haley, associate producer at the Webby Awards. Going into this new year, do you have any project goals or cool work you've accomplished that you would love to show off, such as creative online games, unique websites, that really nice TikTok account, or that Substack newsletter you cannot stop reading? At a time like this, it's so easy to think what you would look like in Web 3.0. So I'm sure you or a friend are great at making work on today's internet. If so, I'm here to tell you that there is still a bit more time to enter your work into the 26th Annual Webby Awards, where it'll be seen from the most talented people on the internet. The extended entry deadline is Friday, February 11th. This year, we have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including new categories for email newsletters, podcast, social, and even installation experience. Visit webbyawards.com to learn more. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Keeping data secure 24-7. Universal access to all knowledge. Proud to be for everyone. Yeah. Universal access to all knowledge. Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. The past two years have been marked by significant innovations, with new technologies and data at the center of it all. Everything from how we entertain ourselves to how we shop is rapidly changing, and brands are clamoring to understand what consumers want and interact with. My next guest and his team are helping companies keep up and connect the dots while using ethical data practices. Hamish Brocklebank is the chief of YouGov Safe at YouGov, an international research and data analytics group. He has built a tool that lets consumers get paid to share information about everything they do online, what they buy, what they watch, what they play, all of which helps to inform the next wave of technology. On a larger scale, his firm YouGov studies what shifting consumer choices will mean for brands, marketers, and really all of us. This year, they've helped us survey how consumers feel about recent digital innovations across online gaming and live stream commerce for the 2021 Webby Awards Trend Report, titled Way Too New. Hamish and I talked a lot during our conversation about data and some of the biggest consumer shifts he's seen this year, from why young people are spending less money to why virtual world games are so compelling. He started off telling me a bit about how YouGov Safe came to be. Yeah, so, so in short, we've been building this tool for about a year now, um, which allows our panelists, and we have a sort of very large number of them, tens of millions globally, to share with us and get paid um, in a consent-driven manner uh, data that exists about them and we've and the other third parties that um, hold about them. So we basically makes it very easy to go and, for instance, get your Netflix viewing history as a user, to get your um, shopping history, your banking data from a bunch of third-party services, and then sell it to us, give it to us in a fully consent-driven manner. So what we like to think is it's this is data that, unfortunately, companies are surreptitiously collecting about 
lots of people already. Um, and mm. the users who are having this data collected on them aren't really getting anything, for, well, they're usually getting nothing for it except getting more ads targeted to them. So you could argue that it's a, a sort of negative sum, a net sum, but we're trying to change that. We're trying to say, okay, you can, um, if you so choose, you can share this data with us um, in an ethical manner, and we will only share it with other companies in an ethical manner and pay you quite a lot of money for it. And then we're able to use that data to do interesting things like figure out how many people are buying and, and a particular product one week or how much they're spending on insurance or what they're watching on Netflix or what they're browsing on particular websites. Um, and that's what we've been building. And we, and we sort of see this as the sort of one of the next iterations of market research by combining this type of data with survey data. Um, and, you know, it's only been possible for us, thankfully, because we have a, a deep level of trust with our panelists. So when they sh they're sharing their info, I mean, is this sort of, you know, I think back in the day, TV providers used to have like these special boxes they would give to special certain families, you know, in the US, it's called like the Nielsen family. And uh, it would just sort of record and find out everything they watched. And that's kind of how like ad dollars were spent based on, you know, that's how they figured out who watched what shows and that kind of thing. Do you, is this like a similar conceptually similar to that, but just at, with the wonders and sophistication of the internet and all the different types of things people do there? Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell. Um, so, I mean, what you're talking about, the Nielsen boxes, the Nielsen family, they still exist. And, and Nielsen hmm. have, I think it's 25,000 people in the US so um, who are still doing that. Um, the data is limited. The data is also extremely biased. Um, so, you know, the quality of the data coming out, wouldn't say it's very good. Um, in comparison to what can be done, um, and you know, in the in the sort of pre-internet age, you know, what Nielsen were doing was the gold standard because it was the best that anyone could do. Yeah. Um, now we can all all do a lot better, um, and we're trying to use that. But but in terms of figuring out what people are watching, that's just sort of one of the use cases. Now I'm, I'm based in LA, so as well as building the product, I also spend a lot of time talking with clients and, and selling it to clients and working with them. Um, obviously, being in Los Angeles, most of them. The clients I talk with are movie studios and TV production companies and TV streaming services. Um, so yeah, so it's a big use case, but there's lots of other use cases in terms of trying to figure out what type of news websites people consume and digging down to survey, then survey those people to find out more what are actually people buying on Amazon. But in a nutshell, yeah. And, and so unlike the, you know, the aforementioned other surreptitious companies that are sort of like trying to gather data via cookies. And ultimately what they're trying to do is, you know, they're not trying to take this information aggregate so much as they're trying to figure out like, who's the person who's about to buy, you know, I think a barbecue sauce and make sure that they have an ad for that barbecue sauce in that moment. Um, you're really looking, and this is really looking more at sharing this information with advertisers and companies and brands in aggregate, right? You're not necessarily the companies don't use this information to then go and market you know, almonds to almond lovers, but to find out what almond lovers like. Is that, is that right? It is both, but it's definitely, um, we don't, we're not as focused on the sort of the intercept as mm. it were, um, as other companies. So we do do some sort of one-to-one -one level targeting, but again, it's all, it's all consent driven if that particular user wants to opt in. Um, but predominantly it's, it's more about understanding, using this data to understand the sort of the macro trends. It sounds like a fascinating, you know, perch to be looking at consumer behavior from you sort of have like a i know it's an aggregate god view but a bit of a, a god view an anonymized god view of what the world is doing right 
Yeah, no, and it, and it is really interesting. I mean, you know, it's you know, it it's interesting for for a bunch of reasons. It is interesting to sort of see slightly ahead of the curve. You know, what type of products people are buying, or what type of TV shows are people watching? You know, and obviously useful. And going back to the sort of the cookies, you know, one of the things where we think we have a sort of commercial advantage, but also um, as well as an ethical advantage, um, is ultimately all these surreptitious sources are going to get shut down. I mean, maybe not in every country. And not for every use case, but you know, at least in you know Europe with GDPR regulation, the UK, which obviously you know, also EU with GDPR regulation, the UK, which is actually now in, looks like to be enforcing a stricter version of GDPR than the EU is even doing, um, as well as you know, obviously California, in, you know, maybe not America as a whole, but certain states like California are doing um, a very good job um, at slowly making it harder and harder to to collect this data without you consenting so yeah so i mean your your view then is that like when we look back on you know 20 2005 to 2025 or whatever the right timing there is that that the the sort of like hyper targeted advertising based on cookies and so forth is going to kind of look like a bit of like a wild west of the early internet and that and that, you know, ultimately a lot of this type of behavior and this type of targeting is going to get regulated out, essentially. I mean, that's what I hope. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't dare to try and predict the future with too much certainty, but, sure. but that, is what I, that is what I hope. Yes. And I think, I think in many places it's moving. It's definitely moving that way. Interesting. So tell me a little bit about some of the biggest, you know, innovations that you've seen, either whether technology or just overall changes in consumer behavior that you've seen over, say, pa- the past year. Um, sort of with your eye view into all the all this different type of consumer behavior online. You know, a lot of the big changes are, you know, probably not a surprise to anyone. Um, people are watching an awful lot more. Um, one of the things, uh, and people are, you know, spending more time online than they were previously. One of the things that is sort of interesting is people are subscribing to more services than they were previously. People are paying a lot more money in SaaS subscriptions and are feeling much mm. more comfortable um, to pay a lot more money in SaaS subscriptions for a multi- multitude of services, um, not just on the streaming, but also in gaming, in music. You know, it's very common now that we see for people to subscribe to uh, surprising, you know, Spotify and Apple Music, for example, which is odd, especially because they both, you know, have the same, basically the same content. Uh, so that's one of the sort of the biggest, I, I, I mean, that's ultimately the biggest thing we're seeing. This is quite interesting. So, Children's content has gone up a lot. And that's basically because parents, you know, basically have to spend a lot more time looking after their children now. And so are putting them in front of the TV. Um, So we're seeing a lot of growth there. Um, We also bizarrely are seeing like nostalgia TV viewing, which we suspect is probably like, I don't know, you know, people watching kids shows from 30 years, like adults watching kids shows from 20, 30 years ago. Huh. Uh, which is sort of surprising. And we, we so try to survey those people to find out, and it is like nostalgia. The world's not really necessarily the most comforting place right now for a lot of people. And then obviously, like in terms of gaming behavior, it, it's just crazy the amount of um, money people are spending, the amount of time people are spending online. The demographics are aging up, um, so it's older and older people. Um, I mean, younger people are still doing all of that, but older people as well. On that demographic question, I mean, before we move on too far into gaming here, because I want to get back to that, but um, overall, do you, like, are you seeing that, you know, there's always been this idea that, you know, that young people adopt the internet and that, that old people are, you know, they have their phone font turned up to 42 and, 
you know, they, they, they're learning to send email. I'm exaggerating, but sort of like, you know, that's kind of been the stereotype, essentially, that the adoption is on the younger end and that the older the older demographic is slower to adopt. Are we are you starting to see, you know, that change? Is it getting to a point where there's there's just less divergence between ages on in terms of Internet behavior? Or is that still a pretty important thing? I think it might be a little too early to say completely. I mean, like take TikTok, for example. You know, TikTok has you know, heavier usage amongst younger people. But if you look right. at TikTok, they're part of their growth strategy. And, and I was saying, because I'm seeing these billboards post plastered everywhere where I live in, in Los Angeles. They're now targeting TikTok much more to sort of older audiences, to sort of people above the age of 25. And you're seeing growth there. Um, hmm. And when you look at the types of content people are you know, putting on there. But yeah, ultimately, you know, younger people are still the uh, leading the way as it were and then you're also just seeing you know things whole platforms age out you know ultimately you're seeing facebook usage just drop um even starting to see instagram usage just drop um and people again people moving over to tiktok um younger people still using snapchat abundantly whereas old people just don't use it at all um mm. so I'm, I'm putting everyone into buckets of young and old people um very unfair yeah. of me but just sort of older people. So, but yeah, it's it's definitely uh, interesting. But that all that being said, ultimately, older people have much more disposability or, or have much more income. So, you know, there's the whole, from an economic perspective, um, you know, if I can get people in their 40s who can, you know, most people you know, can spend a lot more money, for instance, on gaming or music or on TV than someone who's 20, even though there might be less usage, my economic incentive as a, as a tech company is, right. is to get those older people um right. all those people with you know a solid job and income let's talk about gaming for a second yeah. you brought that up a minute ago um you all helped us field a research for our annual yeah. um sort of trend report talk which this year is called way too new um and one of the things we're looking at is how to understand innovations and how they're impacting consumers in a few areas gaming live stream video immersive events and contactless payments and what we found with y'all is that in online gaming, 30% of people we surveyed played virtual games. I mean, that's to me like Minecraft, Roblox, Fortnite. Maybe that's a shockingly high number, I thought. But I guess if, from your perspective, maybe it wouldn't be because you've been sort of watching watching this trend for a while. I mean, yeah, we've been watching it for a while. But if you think, you know, think about it from a sort of value for money perspective, if you're, a, you know, especially if you're on the younger spectrum, you know, games like Fortnite. They, they, you know, they have two aspects going for them. They have fantastic value for money. And yes, you might end up spending more money uh, in the game doing whatever, but your actual sort of, you know, if, you're, you're, if you think of a cost per hour of entertainment mm. is, is nothing compared mm. to a more traditional computer game, like, I don't know, Grand Theft Auto, whatever, which costs 60 bucks or whatever. I mean, right. still a great time. So that's, and then you've also got the social element of a lot of these games as well. So, you know, you look at the social, you know, people have genuine friendships um, with people that they either have met on playing online games or they've sort of met in real life, um, but have very, in real life, have very loose social threads with sort of social connections with, but have used online gaming as a way to, to sort of strengthen and solidify that friendship. I expect that's only going to increase dramatically. And then of course, you've got teams of people on those who are working on those online games who are trying to create the best possible experience and so as opposed to a traditional game they're always optimizing to sort of encourage you to play more 
it's not like, oh, it's done. This is the game. Move on to the next game. It's, you know, right. how can we make sure that you play this all of the time and give us all of your attention or as, or as much attention as we possibly can? Um, so yeah, 30% doesn't surprise me. And I suspect that number is just going to grow and grow and grow. You know, we're also seeing games even games that aren't traditionally sort of virtual or, or were never designed to be a virtual game, they're now game developers are now stepping back and actually saying for all types of games, let's bake in the technology and the um, game mechanics so that we can make this game a virtual game, even if it's the type of game that might not traditionally be a virtual game. And is that do you think that's because they re- they're recognizing the power of the social element to get to increase... Into, Absolutely, sort of really yeah. And you know, and if we look at you know esports from that, um, you know, and which I think sort of segues quite nicely, you know, yeah. the fact that um, you know for them it's such a both a revenue stream for the gaming companies, but it's also a marketing channel for the game as well. Um, so that's that's what we're sort of seeing, I think, across you know all all fronts basically. The other thing that was really interesting too is that uh, we found that. 40% of those of that 30%, so you know, almost half, say I said almost, are making frequent in-game purchases. So it's a it's not only just a a pretty large chunk of the population that's playing, but of those that are playing, it's a significant amount that are that are, you know, exchanging commerce and buying things and and you know, selling things also in some cases. Yeah. And I know it's it's incredible. If you look at sort of younger societal trends, um, especially in America, young people are spending less money going out, less money on alcohol, less money on on drugs. That's probably a good thing. There are a lot of young people who are not spending their disposable income um, on. Oh, actually, this is for all people, but uh, yeah, all but but are not spending their disposable income on things that were traditionally they would be spending their disposable income on. And so now this is something to do. The whole you know metaverse and NFTs and all that. It's um you know they're now basically spending money on what um, one person was calling sort of digital clout. Um, so they are happy to spend money, you know, in the same way that someone a sneakerhead spends, you know, $300 or whatever it is, um, that they're doing the equivalent thing um, in these games. And that's really important to them. Um, and, and so, you know, whole market shifts are changing or market trends are changing. What are the type of questions then that the brands would come to you and, and, you know, beyond, of course, they want to know what's the demographic playing this game or that game and what's growing and that kind of thing. But what are the other types of things that brands would ask or want to know about this world of virtual gaming? So it's two, two really main questions on both sides. So on the defensive side, they want to know if they partner, is it going to damage their existing brand? So for them, they're mm. all about brand growth. So, so that's a big thing because they don't want to be seen as devalued. I'm, I'm so for them, damaging the, the, the real life brand is, is a big risk. Um, so that's their big thing is, is it going to affect their real life sales? Um, and by and large, we show that it doesn't or, or we don't think it does. And our research sort of supports that it's not actually going to have much of an impact. In fact, mm. it might do the opposite. It might extend it because you might give a, a sort of um, a gateway into the brand uh, for younger people who might not be able to afford the brand, but but hooks them as fans until they're older. And then that leads on to the second question is how can those brands, I mean, if we're just talking luxury here, um, mm-hmm. but, but why not? Because it's an interesting market. Um, the luxury brands are sort of looking at it, not just the demographic, but how can we keep those people engaged so that they, you know, when they're older and they have more money 
or, or when they want to, they buy the stuff in real in real life. Now, those mm. questions might start changing where they actually, you know, right now they're sort of looking at virtual as an extension of the physical, using the virtual as a mechanism to eventually build the physical brand. But eventually mm. the virtual brand might be valuable enough in its own right that they could sort of dispose of the physical brand. Right. Um, but, but they're not asking that yet. Uh, but that's what I think is next. Right. I mean, it certainly seems like it would be less expensive to make virtual coats than yeah, it would well, be to exactly, make real yeah. ones, right? You know, <laughs> even, I mean, at a, even at a, a lower price point. Yeah. I, I mean, a sort of a more traditional example that is somewhat similar is more how, um, you know, luxury brands have uh, sort of affordably priced perfume and sunglasses. Sure. Um, it's, it's somewhat similar um, in that respect. Right. Um, but, but obviously not quite the same. Yeah. And in those cases, sometimes it's, you know, $300 for a very, very, very small bottle of essentially yeah. water. So, oh yeah. Yeah. The margins so, on it, I, I, it's yeah. like just, just as great, but it's, but it's yeah. accessible in terms of, you know, most people, if they really want to can, can scrape together $300, you know, they may have to save up for it, but it's accessible. Um, uh, even if it's incredibly expensive, but it's not a thousand dollars, which, you know, right. just for most yeah. For, well, probably for most people, is out of their price range altogether. So this is a, this is a good segue into sort of the second topic we talked about, which is also having to do with commerce in some sense, and that's and that's live stream video. And so, you know, I think you know one of the ways people think about live stream video is like watching. I guess we don't call it live stream anymore, but watching you know shows or watching events. Um, but you know, there's sort of a new you know world or of another part of that which is influencers who are live streaming things live streaming events live streaming events they're at um and having some sort of you know opinion about it and in some cases that's also wearing some wearing clothing or selling something and that kind of thing and we found that you know the, through the survey about almost 40 percent, 37 percent of people watch influencer or creator live streams um, and almost half, 46% of those have purchased a product they saw during a live stream. And of course, this, this also does sort of merge or overlap with, you know, virtual gaming and that there are people who are sort of doing live streams within games and also, you know, sort of trying to be influencers within those things and having some say on people's shopping habits. So some of these things kind of intersect. And um, what have you seen in this, in this sort of new world of, of live stream video and specifically around influencers and creators. I, I mean, I mean, like, I suppose the, the the thing we're seeing more and more, yeah, you know, the numbers of influencers are just increasing. Um, the definition of an influencer, I think, is changing quite a lot. Um, we're seeing more and more smaller influencers. We're also seeing like super targets. I mean, this is like, I think, I, actually, I think this is a really interesting topic. We're starting to see like super niche influencers more and more like. Uh, sort of, you can always think of them as genre specific influencers. Um, you know, so it you know, probably starts a couple of years ago when we started seeing like, uh, you know, influencers who are all about cleaning products and cleaning their house, which is like, I'm like, wow. But, but people watch that stuff and engage with that content. It's, right. it's, it's, um, it's incredible. And, and those, and those people doing it are also talking on the e-commerce side are also plugging whatever cleaning products they're using to clean their, right. their house with. Um, I know right. it sounds like such a sort of dull topic, but but there's tens of thousands of people in engaging with it, uh, or hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people engaging with it and buying products. You're also seeing, like if we look at TikTok, you're also seeing a lot of, you know, you've got your sort of 
influencers, the more traditional inverted commas influencers who might be like more on the comedian side or might just be more on the like, they're very attractive or on the clothing or they sort of represent some sort of glamorous lifestyle, which yeah. has been what traditional influencers are. Right. But we're also saying more like educational influencers, which I think is a really positive oh. thing, actually. Okay. So you're seeing influencers who are like science experiment influencers, right. who like do cool science experiments and on TikTok and, and millions of people are watching them and they're explaining. And the wonderful thing is, is like, they're explaining the science of whatever it is they're doing while they're doing it. Or um, as, a, as a personal thing, music theory, this is a topic I personally find really interesting, music theory influences, which is, sounds like very niche, is like a big thing. And mm. there's like five or six big um, music theory influences. And they, they make YouTube videos and they do live streams and they do TikTok and they... All they talk about is the music theory of, um, well, not just them. Well, I mean, some of them do of, 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 you know, how pop songs work or how they, mm. cr or, or classical music works or, or how to write lyrics. So I, I really am excited by this sort of new genre, a sort of educational, um, influences because ultimately you're, you're, you know, you're spending time watching them or engaging yeah. with them. Um, but you actually get something, a net positive out of it, which I think is not only good for the individual, but it's good for, um, like, uh, I mean, dare I say it, like a societal good as opposed yeah. to just, like, watching, like. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Someone who's attractive and hot, like live a right. glamorous lifestyle. It's so interesting because, um, you know, at, at the early days of the web, the 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 long tail was really the was really the thing right it was like it was like there was no space for people who were interested in like knitting or you know weird foods or just like all these niche things and so they all went on the web and that was kind of like the days of the early web of course there was people magazine and stuff but like you know the people magazine had a perfectly large big channel and lots of anybody who wanted to find celebrity photos wasn't really having a hard time doing that but then with as you know, and as time went on with the internet, then of course it became more mainstream, more popular, and and sort of like that became, you know, everything. But with influencers, it sort of followed the opposite track, which is that it really did start off in just sort of like glamour and fashion and pop culture and sort of like, you know, and th this like long tail is the stuff that's kind of like really exciting and, as you say, you know, makes you feel good about the con the concept. Um, and it's, it's now it's, it's kind of coming to that now. And just to add like just another one, like, um, building influencers. And when I mean like building influencers, I'm talking like contractors who mm. are like putting together like cupboards or like laying right. concrete and explaining how they do it. There are influencers out there who that's their thing in the, in the UK, for example, I can't, there's a, there's a, I don't know if it's made it over to the U S um, there's like the, there's, she's big on Instagram. She's like the shepherd, the Yorkshire shepherdess. Um, and she like talks about like what it is to be a shepherd in Yorkshire, which for those of your 
listeners who are not aware, Yorkshire's like a very northern rural part of the UK. Yeah. Um, very beautiful, but very, you know, people basically have lots of sheep there. Um, and, and that's, and she's got millions of followers because she tells people about like what it's like to be a farmer and to shepherd sheep and to shear them and all this stuff. And this is stuff that people like find really interesting. And it's, it's also like surprising that, that people like it's cause it's interesting, but like in the traditional media world, there would be no, as you said, there would be no space for it. Um, but it's like you know, lots and lots of things are, are interesting. Mm. Um, even if they're not like glamorous or sexy. Right. Or they're interesting to, you know, 200,000 people, people, not 2 yeah. billion people. That's what, yeah. The last thing we sort of looked at was, and I want to ask you a little bit, and then we'll, is um, contactless. And this has been really interesting, uh, you know, especially you're in LA, especially in the US, you know, digital payments has been very far, has been very behind for years and years. You know, anybody who goes to Shanghai can tell you that, you know, you, you almost never touch cash. And now we're starting to see that here, I guess, largely because of coronavirus over the past year or two. Um, and, and so, you know, now this, this surge in contactless and especially contactless payments is, is moving forward. Um, are you seeing like, are you seeing the similar adoption or behavior change in, in the survey, in the data that you collect and in the surveys, are people saying that they're more comfortable with this now and that they're using it more? Is that, I would imagine that's, those two things are going hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. Um, people are, are much more comfortable they're using it much more. I think a lot of it is, um, you know, we, we've sort of asked people, you know, what are the reasons for it? Um, obviously it's just, you know, people, people are getting more comfortable cause it's been longer. Um, and obviously the coronavirus people not wanting to touch stuff. Um, but we're also seeing like other trends which help, which are like the battery time on smartphones is actually, but is actually starting to become like decent. Whereas, um, mm. you know, my, I got an iPhone, what is it? 13 mini. And it lasts for like, actually lasts for 24 hours without having to charge it hmm. um and uh you know we're seeing that on the latest generation of phones so people feel much more comfortable not to have their credit card with them because they're not worried about their phone dying as much um hmm. so that's a big part of it um and then obviously you know if you, if you think of apple they've done such a good job of making it easy to connect your card your credit card to their ecosystem that the operating systems you know android and apple um have just made that super easy to connect all their systems together. Um, and then also, you know, in the US in particular, you know, part of the reason why the US has been behind has because the, um, nothing to do with the consumer, actually. I mean, it's, it's been the POS terminals um, are, are basically far behind Europe um, and the technology within them. But now they've caught up. So now most shops actually have, you know, five years ago, they didn't have, the t you know, five years ago, you could contactless existed in most places in Europe. Whereas yeah. it didn't exist, existed very few places in the US and also the banks didn't have it as well as in the credit cards didn't have it. Whereas now we have a scenario where most credit cards have the, um, the chips, the, the RFD uh, chips in them. So it works with your credit card or your debit card also works with your phone. Um, so it, it's a sort of, you know, it's a convergence of factors in the US. Um, and then obviously, you know, Corona is a big one. Comfort is obviously a big one. Um, you know, just, just getting used to it. And what about, you know, what about at restaurants? Are you seeing, is there information about how people are adapting to sort of ordering on their phone and less service? Are they liking that? Is that something you all look at? Um, yes, we, we are actually, it's interesting you say that. Um, people do, people generally do like it. Um, I mean, again, there's like a bunch of other sort of confounding or, or things that are going on simultaneously, you know, big movement to pay people and retail more money. 
mm. um, I think from a social perspective, um, you know, also not re well retail, but obviously uh, hospitality, pay them more money um, as well. Um, but, but yes, ultimate, you know, having you know, the menu on your phone. Yeah. The other interesting one is we're seeing QR adoption increase. So like as a tech, it's, it's sort of quite linked because, you know, a lot of restaurants now you go in and they have a little QR code, you scan it and that's how you get the menu. And then some of them, you can even scan it, put your credit card in at the beginning of the meal, and then you can just walk away um, before you like even have to ask your bill because it's already all set up. Um, the QR code is it just, it's an interesting technology because it's, it's a really old technology, but like 10 years ago, Every, most people thought the QR code was like dead. People were like, yeah. oh, it's like a fad. And now they're everywhere. And people, yeah. you know, I use the QR code. I use QR codes like several times a day. Um, yeah, or, or yeah, every time I go to a restaurant or, or a coffee shop and et cetera. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah, we're seeing the adoption just grow everywhere. Basically, people want what's easy. Um, and, and, you know, younger people, again, don't feel the sort of that i think the uh, we're, we're seeing some survey data about this as well like the cash isn't that um mm. doesn't have that sort of primal feeling in such a way that it might do for older people so they don't stress about not having cash on them you mm. know in the way that like this is purely anecdotal but like you know my parents as a kid were always like make sure if you're going out somewhere make sure you've got right. 20 pounds in your wallet um so you can get a taxi home if something goes wrong or whatever. Um, whereas now they just don't think like that. So like they don't, you know, they've, they've always got it on their phone. And then you're also seeing the other thing, which is like these credit cards where parents control the credit cards. So that's a whole different thing. And that's all linked to the phone. So it's basically forcing younger people to go contactless. So there's, you know, you can add it to your, basically your kid's phone where they have contactless payment. And then you as the parent can actually decide to authorize each payment or you can give them a, a daily spending right. limit or, or whatever it is. Um, so ultimately when the current generation of teenagers are in their twenties, so, you know, max 10 years time from now, um, everyone's going to be on contactless for 99% of everything. Um, Sounds like a better set of Apple think. Pay. I'm kidding. It probably will all be Apple Pay. They'll Apple will own the world in ten years. Don't don't between Apple and and Amazon, I, I think we'll we'll probably all be working for them in some capacity. Hamish Brocklebank, it's been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. So many great insights, and uh, you know, I encourage people to, people to check out the Brand Index for sure. And we've really enjoyed the partnership and chance to to learn more about you know what uh, the world of tech innovation is, what's going on out there. And and thank you for that. Thank you to Hamish for stopping by the Webby Podcast. If you are interested in learning more about our research with YouGov, stay tuned. For more information about the Webby Awards, please visit us at webbyawards.com or on most social platforms at the Webby Awards. If you like our podcast, we'd be so grateful if you took a moment to give us a rating or review. You can reach me on social at DMDLikes. Our producer is Kate Mishkin. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Our assistant producer is Haley Lewis. Our managing director is Rithesh Minon. Claire Graves is our president. Music is Poddington Bear. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is... Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort.
Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com, code SUPER24. This is the Webby Podcast. 